On, uh, on June 11, 2002, uh, British artist, manager, kind of entrepreneur, uh, TV show producer Simon Fuller launched a TV show that would change the history of American television forever. Um, its success, the success of this show, was described um, as unparalleled in broadcasting history. Um, an executive from a rival TV network said it is the most impactful show in the history of television. And for an unprecedented eight years, this show was number one uh, among all rankings in, in TV. What is it? American Idol. What did you say? Kaylee? <laughs> uh, American Idol, right? Um, you know how it goes. American Idol is a show about performing. It's about uh, criticism and critiquing, and it's about being judged. And uh, the nature of the show is that over a number of months, you start off with this huge pool of applicants and contestants, and then they, they get selected and they enter the show. And then um, there's week by week they perform and they are judged and they get whittled down to just the final two. And the final two uh, end up performing for like three hours and having all these guest things. But, but there they are on the final night. And uh, what's interesting about that final night is once they crown the winner, uh, the winner then comes back up, you're right, receives all the accolades and all this, and then comes back up and sings again. Now, I'm going to start using the female. I'm going to start saying she because obviously Carrie Underwood was the best American Idol ever. Um, uncontestable. And so she gets back up on stage and sings the song that she had just sung like 20 minutes ago, her big finale song. She turns right back around and sings it again. But there's a huge difference in the way that she sings that. Because when she sang it the first time, she was singing it waiting to be judged, waiting to, to receive the judge's approval or disapproval for that. But when she sings it the second time, She's singing it from a place of having won. And so in a very real sense, she's singing it from a place of freedom instead of a place of waiting condemnation or judgment. She's not, she's not still wondering, what do you think about me? She is free to use her gifts and to share that with the crowd and with the rest of the world in a, in a way that she never had before. In, in the book of Romans, for seven chapters... The Apostle Paul has essentially been kind of getting into the details and meticulously working out how it is that God is saving the world. How it is that he's bringing redemption to people across the globe. And he gets into the fine points of exactly what sin is and how sin works in our lives and out uh, around us in the lives of others and then just generally in the world. And then he gets into the very fine details of what Jesus did in the atonement and how his, his death paid for sin. And, and then he starts getting into the, the application of that. And, and it's a lot of details. And in many ways, the first ch seven chapters are the 10, 12, 13 weeks, whatever it is that leads up to that last night and to the winner's circle. But friends, chapter 8 is the winner's circle. In chapter 8, the Apostle Paul starts laying on the application of the gospel thick. He is saying, look, if that's true of you, if you are in Christ, if you are believing in Him and trusting in the forgiveness that He has brought you at the cross, then there are all these things which are true of you. And he jumps right out of the gate in chapter 8 right here and says... And, 
Look, if you have never thought about memorizing a verse of the Bible in your whole life, or whether you have or haven't, memorize this verse. Look right there in verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. He comes out and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The thing that is true for the winners in American Idol becomes true for you if you are in Christ. And that is that you are no longer waiting on some future judgment to define your life. You have already been acquitted. You have already been pardoned. You have already been accepted. You are loved more than you can ever imagine and as much now as you ever will be. And the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to see throughout this whole chapter, which we're going to look at for the next three weeks, he's trying to get us to see what exactly that means in your life and in my life and in the lives of his people. What does it mean that I don't have condemnation? In a very real way, what it means is that you can live in freedom in a way that you never have before. Just as as Carrie Underwood steps up there and sings in freedom, you now... Live in freedom. And the very first way Paul talks about that happening is by giving you the Holy Spirit. By giving you the Spirit. So tonight we're talking about what it looks like to live in the Spirit. So let's read from Romans 8, the first 17 verses. He starts off by saying again, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, who, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. This is the word of the Lord to us. As we think about what it means to live in the Spirit and to to see what that looks like, there's three dimensions to this that we get in this passage. The first is that, very simply, the Spirit frees you. The Spirit frees you. Secondly, the Spirit empowers you 
Thirdly, the Spirit adopts you. So those three things, let's look at the first one, how the, how the Spirit frees you. So again, right out of the gate, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're no longer being judged. That, right, that the voice that matters most in the world says, I love you. I accept you. With all of your flaws, with all of your imperfections, with all of your haven't got to that yet, with all of that stuff... If you can look at Jesus and say, His death was a substitution for mine. He gets my sin, I get His righteousness. Then friends, you are restored to a loving relationship with God. There is no more judgment for you. He can't love you any more than He already does. Um, There is a a story on radio, a radio program slash podcast now called uh, This American Life led by Ira Glass, and uh, This American Life was interviewing um, a woman, uh, a black woman, uh, about her experience of growing up in America, but now living as a foreigner in Paris. And um, she said this, she said, I was always an outsider at home in America, and here I am in Paris, and I feel most inside right now, when in reality I'm most outside. That's what freedom is about, though. It's not about having nothing left to lose. It's about nothing left to be. You don't have to be anything anymore. Look, when Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit giving you freedom, he's not saying that it's a freedom that just like cuts all the ties around you and you just go live however you want. i got nothing to lose. I'm just a free, careless spirit to go kind of live according to all my pleasures. We very rightly recognize that, that we all have enough stuff in our heart, kind of enough disordered desires, that that would be terrible for us. That if freedom meant we just go do me, you go do you, I'll go do me, that, that would end very badly, very quickly for some of us. But, but what Paul is saying is that for you to be freed by the Holy Spirit means that you have nothing left to be. You don't have to go prove yourself to anyone anymore. Now let me start with God. You don't have to go to God and say, look at me, look how how great I've been, or at least I've been better than these other people, or did you see me last week and I didn't do that thing, or have you noticed I haven't looked at porn in two months? We don't have to go presenting continually our spiritual resume to God and say, aren't you impressed? But similarly, we don't have anything to be in front of other people. Because what the Bible is trying to get us to see is that there is one voice in the world that matters above all the other voices. That if we can somehow simplify our life and live for an audience of one, then friends, there is freedom untold in that place. It is freedom that is deep and rich in a way that you have never experienced. Don't you want that? I do. I do. Some days I I believe it. Some days I really do get the sense that God loves me and that He's for me and that, you know, it really doesn't matter if you guys don't like me or if I have a crappy meeting with one of y'all and I feel like I just didn't say anything of value or if I, you know, whatever. I want to be free from that tyranny of what do you think about me. And I know that you do too. And Paul's saying the Holy Spirit starts to do that in us. And it may be in fits and starts, and we feel it more concretely sometimes than at others. But he starts to free you to be you. So how does he do that? 
Well, Paul starts off by saying it, it involves a change of your mindset. Look in verses five through seven. He he contrasts setting your minds on the things of the your mind on the things of the flesh versus setting your mind on the things of the spirit. Now, here's what you have to know about when Paul uses the word flesh. I mentioned it last week, but I'll say it again. When he talks about the flesh or the body, he's referring to kind of the old you. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. But the reality is is that there is a you that lived for some period of time before that and that has kind of ingrained customs and patterns and ways that you used to think about things, whether that was uh, sexuality or, um, uh, or cheating or gossiping or whatever it was. The flesh or the body is the residue of those things which still exists in your life. And so he's saying we have to change our mindset from just thinking about those things and giving ourselves to those things to now giving ourselves to the things of the Spirit. So what are the things of the Spirit? What are the things of the flesh? He doesn't really give us a list here, but he does somewhere else. Actually, in Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to put it up there, he says this to this church in Galatia. Uh, He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice, he doesn't say those who practice, those who like have done these things. Paul's talking about if you are just doing these things in an ongoing sense without a desire to change, that is characteristic of someone who is living in the flesh. They are not a Christian. Okay, and I, maybe that's you. I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm just saying these are kind of, that's, that's the mindset. That's where you're chasing after. Basically, the deeds of the flesh, the things, the things of the flesh are anything that works uh, against you and that tries to destroy you or moves to destroy people around you. And you can look at that list and, and kind of get it, right? That, that seems to be fairly apparent. But if, your mind, but if your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, he said, you have freedom, which he calls life and peace. He's saying there is this list of all these things, and, and that brings you enslaved and brings you a certain kind of death, But if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit, and that will lead you toward life and peace, which is contrasted with sin and death. So what are the things of the Spirit? If those are the things of the flesh, what are the things of the Spirit? Before I put up the list of the spiritual things from Galatians 5, in order to, I think, to understand the things of the Spirit, we have to ask this more fundamental and basic question, well, who is the Spirit? What is the Spirit? What is the Spirit? Look at verse 9 with me right there. He says, The Holy Spirit is, is none other than the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. It says those both in the same sentence. So which is it? Yes. The Holy Spirit in the Bible proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is their being. 
that comes from them into a new being. And if your mind just exploded, then that means you probably understand the Trinity. Like, it doesn't really make sense. Like, it's, it's this kind of mystery that three in one, they are distinct beings, but they're the same in substance, and they're equal in power and glory, and yet they're distinct. And the Bible talks about them in very distinct realities. That God the Father is the author of salvation, and God the Son is the one who accomplishes salvation, and God the Spirit applies salvation to you. He comes and makes it real for you. He turns the lights on in your heart to where you understand it. So the Spirit is actually the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. So, where do we learn about the things of God? Where do we learn about the things of Jesus? The Bible. The Bible. Look, God has, he has given us himself. He said, you want to know what I'm like? I've given it to you. You want to learn about me? You want to learn about the things of the Spirit, the things of God, the things of Jesus? Study the Bible. Um, read it. Ask quite. Read it and then come ask all your questions. And I'll have other questions for you, and I may not have some answers, and I may not have others. Like, but study it. If you want to get to know the character of God and what the things are that, that you should be aspiring to in the Christian life, read the Scriptures. Um, To set your mind on the things of the Spirit is to set your lifelong course to be a student of the Bible. And I realize, I fully realize that the moment that those words come off my tongue and into your ears, some of you are kind of yawning inside. You're like, yeah, but but isn't there more? Like, isn't there more than just the Bible? Isn't there more than just Jesus? Or, or isn't there more than just kind of the, the truths of God? And, and maybe you've seen this around you. Maybe this is part of your tradition growing up, that the Holy Spirit kind of takes on this otherly, mysterious character. And we think that the Holy Spirit is doing something totally different than what God and what Jesus are doing. That The Holy Spirit is kind of like the crazy member of the Trinity, right? He's uncontrollable and unpredictable, and if you get him, like, you might be crazy. And, um, you know, we, he seems to have a lot of excitement. Whereas when I just say, hey, study the Bible, we kind of hear that and we're like, oh, oh, oh. okay. But here, you have to understand this. The Holy Spirit does not have a different agenda than God the Father and God the Son. And so His main job is to come and and communicate to your heart, to apply the message of the gospel to your heart and life, so that you can actually believe it. Because I can promise you this, I don't know all of you, but I can promise you this, we all want to be loved. We all want to be loved. We want to be desired. We want to be wanted. We want to think there's someone out there that gives a crap about who we are. And the reality is is that the Bible is saying, God loves you. But there's also another reality that, that some of us just don't believe that. And functionally, in some ways, all of us don't believe that. And so we go finding, trying to find other things that will satiate that desire and that craving to be loved and wanted. And friends, the Holy Spirit is God's gift to you to remind you, I love you. There's no condemnation for you in Christ. You've been set free. I'm for you. You don't have to keep doing that thing you've always done. You don't have to be that person that you've been. You don't have to say yes to that thing or to that person. You can change. You can be different. The Holy Spirit is for you. 
So what are some of the practical things of the Spirit? Paul goes on in Galatians 5. Have you ever heard of the fruit of the Spirit? That's this verse right here. It goes right after that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Bible is saying that you will be most set free and most alive and most at peace when the things of the Spirit are increasing in your life. When the fruit of the Spirit is increasing in your life. So how do you get them? How do you get the fruit of the Spirit in you? You've got to be close to God. You've got to be at the places where He is waving His arms metaphorically saying, I'm going to be right here. Where are those things? Theologians call them the means of grace. Here's what they are. Church. Worship. And, and RUF isn't even really that. We, this is kind of like a glorified Bible study. I'm talking about Sunday morning in a church with all ages, with different kinds of people. When you come and are in this divine dialogue between God and us and the Lord's Supper is there and we feast on Him. There's all these other things present there that aren't present here. Church, God says, I'm going to show up there in a way that I don't anywhere else. So you want to meet with me? You want to get to know the things about me? Come there. So church, worship, the Bible. Like actually reading the Bible, is it going to be magical? No. Is every time you sit down and open its pages, you're going to walk away and be like, Oh my gosh, that was incredible. No, I promise you it won't happen that way. But I promise you sometimes it will. So scripture, prayer. How do you pray? That's a great question. You don't know how to pray, let's talk about it. Prayer is not intuitive if you've never done it. It's like, I'm talking to the ceiling, this is the weirdest thing I've ever done. Let's talk about it. What do you pray for? Do I just like a list of everything? Let's talk about it. Ask a, ask a friend of yours who's a Christian, what should I pray for? I've never done it before. So the church, the word, prayer, and God's people, the community. You want to get to know God and the things about Him? Go and live alongside the other people who have His Spirit living in them. Now, are we going to do that imperfectly? All day long. We will hurt each other. But over time, we learn stuff about God through His people. So, um, G.K. Chesterton, um, any of y'all know that name? Very famous, maybe not as famous as I thought, uh, very famous 20th century British author um, who wrote, who's prolific, wrote over 100 books, contributed, contributed to several hundred more. Uh, he says this, he says, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Let me read it again. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. But the things I just told you, kind of the normal things of the Christian life, it may sound boring or it may sound hard. But here's the reality is that the reason that, it, that we don't do it is because we have this megaphone in our ears that is the culture around us and just uh, media, everything, that is saying, hey, true freedom is found in the things of the flesh. Look back at that list. It's like all the things that it's kind of saying, hey, freedom will be found when you go hook up and when you go give your body to someone who you shouldn't be giving your body to. That will be, you'll be totally free and you'll love it and you'll come alive. But those of you who have done it know that's not true. That you walk away from that experience and there's part of you that you've left there. 
And far from being free, you feel enslavement in a whole new way. Or maybe it's this sense of of jealousy and envy for other people, and, and you want so badly what they have that you double down on your efforts so that you can be better, so you can get a better grade or look prettier or have nicer clothes or, or perform better in the athletic event or whatever it is. Envy and jealousy, the things of the flesh, drive you to a new sort of enslavement. And so, friends, I can... I contend with you, I plead with you to try these things. Make it a priority to be in church. Try reading the Bible. If you don't know how to do that, talk to me or Joey or Kira or somebody uh, that you trust around you and say, I don't know how to read the Bible. I don't know how to pray. But try them. Try it on for size. See what happens. See if there is true freedom to be found there. So to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You've been trying to find freedom in the, in the opposite place of where it's offered. The second thing the Spirit does is He empowers you. And these next two are shorter, I assure you. Um, the Spirit doesn't just offer you freedom. He actually comes and indwells you to walk into and experience that freedom. Look at verse 11 and the way Paul puts it there. He says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the, dwell, from the dead also will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. What's he saying? This, I cannot tell you how impactful this verse has been to me over the course of my life. Here's what he's saying. Jesus was dead. Then Jesus was alive. How does that happen? God is powerful, and He spoke to Jesus Presumably said, come out, your time is done, you will be alive. And Paul is saying the very same God, the very same Spirit that brought Jesus from death to life now lives inside of you. So tell me again where those places in your heart are that you've just assumed you're, you're always going to be dead and that you'll never actually get victory or any sort of change. I talk to so many of you, I I, I talk about porn and sexuality a lot because I only talk about it with like 97% of y'all, okay? Um, So many of y'all have this sense of like, I've just been in this so long, but it'll never change. Friends, if Jesus is in your heart by His Spirit, you can't say that. The power that brought Him from the dead is powerful. And He can actually really do things in you. So He brings dead things to life. Um, I was talking with my counselor uh, the other day, yesterday actually, and Madeline had the unfortunate uh, privilege or whatever you want to call it, meeting with me right after and I was a hot mess. Uh, But I talked to my counselor because I need to talk to people and I began to share with him about this this very deep sense of shame that exists in my life for, for not being present with my kids in a meaningful way at home. Um, I work hard up here on campus and with doing RUF stuff, and then I go home, and if any of y'all have been to our house, you know it's like a half-finished home makeover project, and so there are just a thousand things to be done. And so I work hard here, and then I go home, and I just, like, assume the mantle of Bob Vila or, uh, or Fixer Upper, you know, um, what's that dude's name? I'm blanking on it. Chet? Chip. Chip. Yeah, I know it's not Chet. Chip. Uh, and Joanna, so I become Joanna, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm like, Chip Gaines, when I go home, you just start doing the other thing. And, and necessarily the thing that suffers is my family. And so 
we're talking with my counselor about that, and, and he gets to the end. We have about 10 minutes left, and, and he says, well, are you resting? And I'm starting to, like, get allergies and start crying. Um, like, well, what do you mean? He said, are you, are you ever present with your kids in, in a way that's just you being with them? And I said, hardly ever. And he, and he looked at me and said, I want to give you permission to not have to work on the house for the next two months. And I want you to go spend this, this holiday season with your family in a way that you haven't done that yet. And when he said that, when he gave me permission to not go do this thing that I've just assumed I have to keep doing, I lost it. Like all caps lost it for about five minutes. And then I realized this is costing me money to cry, so I need to pull it together. <laughs> and um, so we wrapped up, and I handed him $150, and that was that. Was that. <laughs> Counseling is a bizarre thing. Um, what was it that he did that was so moving for me, that was so freeing for me? He empowered me to do the thing that I wanted to do so deeply. Friends, you all want to change in some very deep and profound ways in your life. There are things that you do and have been doing for so long, they've just become rote, patterned. You, don't, you haven't even thought about what it could be like to be different. The Holy Spirit doesn't just give you permission, though. He empowers you. He says, I'm not just going to tell you you can do that. I'm going to come equip you to do that. I'm going to free you up from whatever it is to do that. Try him. Ask him. Say, help me. I want to stop this. And that may mean that you have to take some very real concrete steps. Just like for me, every time I drive home, I'm going to have to hear him saying, make these two months great. And I'm going to have to walk past all the thousand things I could do. I'm going to have to walk toward my kids and toward my wife. It's going to take real concrete thing, but he is freeing me up to do that. And the Spirit does that for you. So where is that for you? What are those things that you know you want and need to change? You just haven't really felt like you can. The Holy Spirit empowers you. But He's better than just a counselor who empowers you. He actually is like a father who adopts you. And that's the last thing tonight. Look back and I'm going to reread verses 14 through 18. Follow along with me. Listen to the intimacy of this language here. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Look, in, in Roman society, in the, in the culture and society to which Paul wrote this letter, um, when you were adopted, you received all of the, the rights that, that natural children had. And that's the same as in our country. Right? When you are declared legally adopted and declared to be a child, you get all of the rights and privileges of a natural son or daughter. Um, 
in Paul's world, though, adoption was normally, it was normally of young adult males of good character. And they were adopted by fair, uh, fairly well-to-do families who didn't have natural children. And so you would kind of get this privileged lot of, of orphans who might be adopted to wealthy parents so that they could carry on their, their wealth. They could become, literally become the heirs of the treasure. But, but don't we know that God's love is better than that? That he looks not just at the privileged few, he looks at enemies, he looks at, at people whose lives are train wrecks, and he says, I want you, I'm choosing you to be my child. And I'm bringing you into my family, and I am making you a co-heir with Christ. You get all of the privileges. Think about, think about this for a second. This will change your life if you get it at a deep level. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. A perfect, he, he did nothing wrong. So, in God's presence, God is forever praising Jesus and saying, You're amazing. Thank you. You, you did everything I asked you to do. You're so wonderful. Come and receive your, the, your rulership that, that I promised that you could have. And if you are a Christian, when you get to be with God, He's going to welcome you in the exact same way. And He's going to say, Hey, come and rule over the world with me. Friends, heaven and glory is not us disembodied, escaping to heaven and floating on the clouds and playing harps and like playing powder puff cloud ball for the rest of our life. Heaven, the new heaven and new earth is God saying, all right, we're here, we've got everybody, let's go down and set up heaven on earth. And let's go rule over and have dominion in this world and create society in a way that the one we live in now only approximates in its best. Let's go be and do who who I created you to be and what I created you to do. When God justifies you and makes you right with Him at the cross, He sends His Spirit into your heart and He adopts you. And he says, you are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter. You have all the rights and privileges that Jesus had. Welcome to the family. J.I. Packer, who's a Christian writer, says this. It's on the front of your bulletin, actually. He says, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of that relationship. He says, to be right with God, the judge, through justification, that's a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father in adoption is a greater thing yet. Um, Let me close with this uh, story. Short story. Um, One of the great kind of underdog movies of all time is the movie Rudy. Have you all seen Rudy? Oh, man, Rudy. Uh, Rudy was based on the true story of a young man named Daniel Ruttinger, Rudiger, um, that's where they get Rudy, uh, who loved uh, Notre Dame football and wanted nothing more than to play for the team. But Rudy had a big problem. Rudy was undersized. He was not fast. Uh, he was too, uh, too small in stature, but he practiced harder and worked harder than everyone else on the Notre Dame football team. And at one point in the film, the coach looks at Rudy and says this, I wish God would put your heart in some of my players' bodies. Friends, the Holy Spirit is God putting his heart into your body. 
It is God putting His heart into your body and saying, you're a new person. You can change. You're free. I'm empowering you to be the son or daughter that you've always wanted to be. Look, some of you had great fathers who loved you deeply and well and thoroughly. Some of you didn't. For those of you who did have great fathers and do have great fathers, the best love and affection and care and attention they paid you only is only a shadow of what you have in God the Father. And for those of you who didn't have great fathers, the thing that you so wanted and so longed for from your father and that you're still to this day heartbreaking, heartbroken that you don't have, that is what is offered to you in the gospel, is a father who never leaves you, never forsakes you. He gives himself to you, his very heart. He's a good father. And he loves you. Please pray with me.